Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, and I'm going to begin reading in the middle of a paragraph, which is not always the best thing to do, but um, uh, because the text is somewhat long. We're going to start at verse 15. Romans 7, verse 15, right in the middle of a paragraph. Here we go. Romans chapter 7 and verse 15. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The grass withers. And the flower fades. But the word of our God, oh, it endures forever. I had this great idea for a a summer sermon series. Uh, In light of the fact that y'all are gone so much on vacation, I thought I was going to, I thought I'd do this. That I would preach the same sermon eight straight weeks. You know, I, I feared, however, that about week six, Somebody might figure it out, so I, I, I decided against that method. But here's what I have decided to do. I want to preach eight different sermons, all with the same theme. Eight different texts, eight different places in the New Testament, but all basically are united by the same theme. And the theme is mortification of the flesh. Now, that's what the that's what the Puritans called it, mortification of the flesh. Now that's not a term that we uh, with which we're familiar. Mortification. I mean, uh, the only time we use that term is to describe some low level embarrassment or shame or humiliation, like, uh, "Madam, you have uh, you have spinach in your teeth." Oh, I'm mortified. Well, that's not the way that 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 the Puritans use that term. When, when they used it, they were describing a battle that went on within the life of the Christian against the flesh. They were describing war that had been declared on sin in the life of the believer. That's what this series is about. And in a lot of ways, gang, it's, this whole series is for me. <laughs> let me, let me explain what I mean. 
I, I've been a Christian 37 years. And you know, I really ought to be a whole lot further down the road than I am. I, I really ought to be a whole lot more like the Savior than I, than I find myself. I, I, I ought to be holier than I am. You know, I, I come to texts in here like, like this one. It's found several places in the Bible. You'll, you'll recognize it. Texts like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> I'm nowhere close. I mean, the, the text mocks me. I don't love anything like I love myself. You know, why has there been so little pride? Guys, this is not a boast. It's a, it's a confession. Why is there so little progress on the part of my own battle with the flesh? Let me give you another example. Um, scripture memory. You know, that's a good thing. Scripture memory is a good thing. In fact, uh, the book of Proverbs exhorts that we engage in Scripture memory. It says... How can a young man cleanse his way by keeping it according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Scripture memory is a good thing. Unless you do it like I did it. You know, where it becomes nothing more than just another one of those items on the list of what Christian people do to check off. Or it becomes an, an occasion of... Um, of high-mindedness, uh, of self-righteousness. You know, guys, there's nothing, there's nothing that is more damaging to the soul than, than self-righteousness. And Scripture memory has become a, an occasion of self-righteousness. So if any of that rings a bell with you, and this series is for you, too. <laughs> you know, guys, uh, there's a whole lot of evangelicals who have uh, approached this mortification of the flesh thing as if it was some kind of elective surgery. As if some doctor had told them, you know, um, you really don't need to do this. I mean, you can, you can, uh, you can live your entire life without it, but you know, if you want to do it, you can. And so, so we look at it and say, well, you know, there's a whole lot of work involved, and, and uh, you know, the payoff's kind of small. And so, you know, uh, put me down for no interest. You know, just somebody, uh, you know, call me a carnal Christian and, and punch my ticket to heaven, and that's good. That'll be fine. For, that'll be enough for me. Guys, don't, don't, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that... That mortification of sin is a way to save ourselves. That's heresy. We don't kill sin so that we can win heaven. You know, guys, we got, we, we've got to be born of the Spirit before we can lift a finger against sin. But one of the natural accompaniments of being born of the Spirit, of being born again, being new in Christ, is that we wage War on our flesh. Or said differently, we, we change. We become more and more like the Savior. Now, how, how does faith in Jesus Christ accomplish real change? That's the question before the house. That's what this series is all about. How does faith in Christ uh, affect uh, produce 
accomplish real change in us. Um, and, and I want to suggest that that theme is found often in the Bible and in the New Testament, and thus eight sermons on the same theme. Let me give you just some fundamentals as we try to find an answer to the question. And of course, the question again is, how does faith in Christ affect real change? Let me just give you a couple of fundamentals this morning about as we seek to answer that question. And here's fundamental number one. When I become a Christian, I get a whole new view of myself. Because I get a whole new definition of sin. That is, my my view of myself changes because I get a whole new definition of sin. Um, If I could say it a bit differently, I, I find out when I become a Christian that I'm a whole lot worse than I ever dreamed I was. But I find that out without despairing over my soul. I want to read you again what Paul... I'm, just, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read you what Paul says about his own soul. This is Paul, the apostle and a Christian, and he says this about himself. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Guys, um, the Apostle Paul understood something about the effect and the impact of the fall, the fall of Genesis 3, he understood that it has ravaged us in a way that we never dreamed. And it's left behind a, a dark side, a dark side that is capable of some incredible ugliness. Guys, I am capable of some pretty horrible things. So are you. The only difference between me and a Nazi is Jesus Christ. I I, I no longer can I divide the world up into the good guys and the bad guys. Because the, the line that separates the best of us from the worst of us is a very thin line. You know, just to show you how much I love you, I've been reading this. Um, I've been reading it because it illustrates the point that I'm trying to make out of Romans 7. You know, I showed this volume uh, to three college grads in my office the other day, and they had never heard of it. (laughs) They had never heard of the book, nor had they heard of the author. I know you can't see it. It's The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, come on, please. Um, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, the Russian novelists. I mean, their names are household names in, in literary circles. But Dostoevsky became um, famous as an author because he was considered a psychologist. 
The constant study of his writings was man. You'll never find Dostoevsky uh, spending time describing scenes of, of nature or landscapes because the object of his writing was always man. It was always his, his effort to understand himself and, and the rest of us. And so he writes with that always in view, books like The Idiot, <laughs> The Gambler, Crime and Punishment. Those are all Dostoevsky novels. Well, this novel is considered by many the greatest novel ever written. Um, it's genius, ladies and gentlemen. It is abject genius. And let me, let me tell you why it's genius. The, the experts say that, that Dostoevsky engages in what they call organically collective personality. Did you get that? Uh, I'll explain it, but it's a great little term. Organically collective personality. Here's what that means. Here's what he does. The book, of course, is called The Brothers Karamazov. There are four brothers. They all have the same father, but they have three different mothers. There is Ivan. I mean, one of the brothers, Ivan. And Ivan is brilliant. He is um, vicious in his attacks upon religion. He is constantly pictured in this battle between faith and reason. He is consumed with doubt. And towards the end of the novel, he descends into madness, insanity. Then there's Dmitri. A second brother. He is the oldest of the four brothers. He is um, the most turbulent of the four. He's, he's known for his impetuosity. He's known for his passion. He's reckless in his behavior. And then there's Alyosha. Alyosha is a monk. Um, he is known, he's kind of the hero of the novel, and he's known for his goodness. He's kind, he's loving, he's wise. He, uh, he is loved by everybody. He, uh, he is known for his selflessness. He's not judgmental. And then there's a fourth brother, Smerdyakov. He's an interesting one. Smerdyakov is called by the novel illegitimate. Smerdyakov was born of a woman whose name was Reeking Lizaveta. That was his mother. Reeking means stinking. She was the village idiot of the city. Uh, she was probably retarded. She was um, a, a, a very small in stature. But she was um, called the holy fool. And she was impregnated by these brothers' father, Theodore. And when she gave birth to Smerdyakov, she died in birth-bearing or in, in birth-giving. And so Smerdyakov is the illegitimate son. He's an epileptic. He's called Balaam's ass because he speaks so infrequently. And towards the end of the novel, they all the brothers hate their father. But towards the end of the novel, it's Smerdyakov that murders his father. Now, guys, here's the genius. What Dostoevsky is saying is, that all four of those brothers represent a side of, a part of, the, the, the personality, the emotional being of a human being. That all of those things are woven into every personality. There is, um, there is a, a religious side to us. There is a, 
there is a doubting side to us. There is a passionate side to all of us. But in all of us, there is a smerdiakov. There's an illegitimate side to us all. A dark side. And he calls it organically collective personality. So you take all four of those brothers and you, and you combine them all. And you, you begin to understand something of human psychology and what, what makes us tick as individuals. It's genius. Now, guys, Dostoevsky might not be a name you recognize, but here's one you do, I bet. Nick Saban. You know that name? Nick Saban is the new football coach at Alabama. He won a national championship at LSU. He went on to coach the uh, Miami Dolphins, and, and now he's come to save Alabama from their doldrums. And uh, they signed him for $32 million over eight years, $4 million a year. That's, uh, you know, that's big money in college coaching. But um, back in November and December, when he was being recruited by Alabama, he did some pretty rotten things. He lied to the media, lied to the press, said he wasn't going to Alabama. He lied to the owner of the uh, Miami Dolphins, Wayne Huizinga. And, um, I mean, he was vilified in the sports pages back in the December period because he was such, he, he just, it was ugly what he did. Well, last week, as many of you know, it was SEC Media Days in Birmingham. And uh, Nick Saban was interviewed by a lot of different interviewers, and they were asking about the prospects for Alabama football and yada, can he beat LSU and, you know, all this business. But one of the viewer interviewers asked him about the recruitment period back in December. About the scandal that he produced because of his, the lies that he told everybody. And this is what he said. This is almost a quote. It's not exactly, but it's almost a quote. He said, well, you know, yeah, I, I, um, that's, I made a couple of them. I made, I may have made some mistakes. But that's not really who I am. Oh, yes, it is. That's exactly who you are. It may not be the dominant part of you, but it's in there. There's a Smerdiakov in him as well as me. One other example, you might know the name Michael Richards, who is, who is the guy that played Kramer in Seinfeld. I mean, he's hilarious. I mean, Kramer is hilarious. But I, I think it was in the winter, but it could have been in the spring, that um, uh, Michael Richards was doing a, a, a nightclub, a, a comedy routine gig. And um, uh, he was doing his thing. And, and there was, a, there was a, uh, a customer out in the audience that began to heckle him. And apparently the heckler was an African-American who began to heckle Michael Richards. And Michael Richards lost it. Blew up on stage and, and began to hurl all of these racial, ugly slurs and epithets at the, at the man in the audience. 
It was all over CNN, guys. You saw it. It was all over USA Today. And, and he spent months visiting with the NAACP and Jesse Jackson and, and, and uh, trying to undo what he had done, which I don't think he succeeded yet. But I saw him on, on more than one occasion say to a camera with, with a straight face, he would say, I'm not, I'm not really a, I'm not really a racist. That's, that's not really who I am. That wasn't me. Then who in the devil was it? You're the one that said it. It came out of you, Michael. You know why it came out of you, Michael? Because it is you. It may not be the dominant part of you, yes. But there is a organically collected personality that makes you up. And a part of that collection, in that collection, there's a smerdiakov. And guys, when I become a Christian, maybe for the first time in my life, I am able to drag my sin into the light and be honest with myself about who I am. And it's one of the healthiest things you can possibly do. Guys, I can be honest. I do have a freedom now to be honest about who I am. Because I have a new identity in Christ is what Paul says in chapter 8, verse 1. We'll get to that in just a second. One more story. I've got a, a pastor friend. He's, I've known him for years. And when he graduated from seminary, he took a job um, as a senior pastor. And everybody said, you know, he's way too young to uh, take the job. He's too young to do this. And, but he proved all of his critics wrong. He, uh, he hung in there. He did a great job. He was, in, um, he was there for over 20 years. He, was, um, he, he grew the church. They started a school. Uh, he and his wife were known around the community as, as people who had stood up against the, the murder called abortion. Um, he, he, was a, he was a leader in his small community. He was well thought of and he did a great job as a pastor. He just recently lost that job. And you want to know why he lost it? Because his wife developed an attraction for the youth director on the staff of the church. Nothing was ever consummated. Nothing physical apparently ever went on. But here's, I left out one important little item. Earlier in their marriage, they had a five-year-old that developed leukemia. And they stood up to the community and expressed such confidence in God. And in both in public and in private, handled that situation so wonderfully, talking about their confidence in God's sovereignty. And yet, 15, 20 years later, because she cannot bring herself to say, there's a little bit of Smerdiakov in me. She has cost them their job. And their marriage is on the rocks. Gang, 
maybe for the first time in all of your life, when you become a Christian, you are now freed up to acknowledge, maybe for the first time, this is who I am. And I now have that freedom to be honest with myself because I have a new identity in Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now guys, on the heels of Paul, this is the second fundamental by the way, but on the heels of Paul giving us the most negative assessment of his own spiritual condition, He's the one who says, I don't know, understand myself. I don't do the good that I want. I do the very evil I hate. Wretched man that I am. On the heels of saying that, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Simultaneously, on the heels of, side by side, right after it, he says, yes, this is who I am. Because I'm in Christ, there is no condemnation for me. Gang, if you don't get another thing that I say all morning long, you've got to get this. I, you've got to see that Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for me is spoken by the same man who only seconds earlier said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? That is health. Spiritual, emotional health. To be able to say, I am this. I have a bit of smerdiakov in me. There's a dark side to me. Yes, I, I don't even do the things that I want. But there's no ever again, no more condemnation for me. Why? Because I'm a good boy? No, we settled that in Romans 7. There's no condemnation for me. Because I'm in Christ. Guys, that's health. Anything short of that is emotional, spiritual sickness. We preach a Christ who dies on a cross where sins aren't measured. They're canceled. And there's no other religion in the world that would say that to you. That is, no other religion will tell me, I am capable of tremendous evil, but at the same time, I am absolutely loved. That is, that because I'm in Christ, I need fear no condemnation Although I deserve condemnation. What Jesus Christ has accomplished 
is that he has met all of the righteous requirements of the law for me. The law is now satisfied, so it can no longer threaten me. Thus, be still, my soul. David Ford is a faculty member on the staff of Cambridge University. And he once interviewed a priest, a Roman Catholic priest, who had been in the priesthood for multiple decades. And David Ford asked him, what is the most common problem that you encounter in your numerous decades of listening to people in confession? And the priest responded without a moment's hesitation. He said, the most common problem that I confront in the confessional is... God. Very few of the parishioners that I meet in the confessional have any sense that they are safe and loved by God. My brother and sister in Christ, you mark this down. You mark this down. Underneath all of our moral rebellion, Underneath all of our sinful choices is a failure to believe that God really loves me. We don't believe in a God of grace, and the more we don't believe in it, the more we need it. And because we don't really believe that we're loved and safe, like Paul mentions in 8.1, I react in one of two ways. I either say, what the heck? (laughs) Throw in the tile. What's the use? And go out and live like the prodigal son. Or I say, I've got to crank up the performance so that I can make God love me like the elder brother. And neither of those options will produce a holy life. Guys, let me tell you, let me, let me real quickly try to tell you how this is supposed to work. Let me use this, let's use the example of humility, okay? A character quality that I owe so long for. Well, let's just talk about humility for a second. No man will ever become a humble man when he grits his teeth, clenches his fist, and out of the sheer exertion of his will, I am going to produce humility. It will never happen like that, folks. But nor will it ever happen to any man who is not honest with himself. Who won't... Who refuses to believe like Paul said about himself there is a bit of the Smerdiakov in me but because we're loved in Christ we're free to be honest with ourselves unlike Nick Saban 
So, humility at least becomes an option, a possibility. Guys, you won't recognize this name. Uh, his name is Cardinal Jaime Sin. You know, it's a it's a awful thing to be a clergy to be a clergyman and have a last name of Sin. But that's what his last name was, Cardinal Jaime Sin. He was a Catholic Archbishop in the Philippines, located in, uh, headquartered in Manila. He just died in 2005, but he was the Archbishop of uh, the Philippines back when um, the People's Revolutionary Power overthrew Ferdinand, uh, Ferdinand Marcos. Do you remember any of that? It was 30 years ago or so. Uh, Amelda Marcos and all the shoes and all that. Well, at the center of that revolt was this archbishop, high, uh, or cardinal now, Jaime Sin. And he tells this story. That's, that's, he tells a story about a woman who, on a weekly basis, would come to his audiences, and he kept bugging the daylights out of him, saying, you know, I have a message from God for you. I have a message from God for you. And and he just irritated the dickens out of him. And so he kept, uh, you know, he'd ignore her and brush her off. And, and so finally, after he had had enough, he said, Now, madam, we Catholics have strict rules governing visions and messages from God. I need to test your authenticity. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back home. I want you to pray and ask God about a sin that I confessed Personally, privately, and if he tells you what that sin is, then I'll know that your message is from God. So she goes home. A week later, she shows back up. And, and so the cardinal approaches her somewhat nervously, and he says, Well, um, did you ask God about my sin? She said, uh, I did. And he said, Well, um, did God answer? And she said, Yes, he did. And he said, well, um, what did he say? And she said, uh, well, God said he couldn't remember. Now, guys, I'm not trying to make light of sin as if sin is a no big deal. It is a big deal. And we Christians ought to worry about our sin before we commit it. But it is only the devil that would have you worry about it after you've committed it. Gang, we celebrate a grace that makes it possible for us to say, wretched man that I am. And then immediately add, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those are the people who are changing slowly, but changing into the image of Jesus Christ. Can you say that? Our Father, I do pray that you will use uh, this, uh, this brief look at a glorious portion of your word 
to refresh your people and to encourage them and to remind them that though there is this dark side to all of us, that we are safe, not because we're good. We're safe because we're in Christ. And He's good. And I pray, Lord, that that will free us up to go look at things honestly, maybe for the first time, and to move forward in mortifying our flesh. Lord, if you've brought people in here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, if they're here without a Savior thinking that the way to get to heaven is to, is to be a good boy and girl or uh, to get baptized or to give money or uh, to support the United Way, whatever, Lord, whatever they're trusting in, cause them to see that it is sinking sand. And the only ground upon, underneath us which is solid is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Would you do that, Father? Would you accomplish great good as a result of your word being taught this morning? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.